Psalm 24. Well, I want you to look with me again at verse 1. It sort of illustrates, I think, why the Word of God would be no longer, is no longer welcome in America's public arena, at least less than ever. It says, the earth is the Lord's. Just say that verse on Earth Day, amen? Try. Put that on the bulletin board in the public school on Earth Day. The earth is the Lord's. And the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. In other words, everything that we see around us, the trees, the mountains up north, the oceans, the rivers, all the fullness of the earth, it says, and the planet itself, and it says, all they that dwell therein, all the people. The whole world, the scripture says, belongs to God. If that's not politically incorrect enough, then notice the reason why it belongs to him. Verse 2 says, for he hath founded it upon the seas. In other words, not only do you have God's authority in this text, you also clearly have the creator. He did it. He made it. He created it. So that God, who created this world, is the owner of this world and all that's in it. And that's not all. Verse 3 says, who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who shall stand in his holy place? Well, now you have a doctrine that includes salvation and accountability. After all, verse 3 implies that some people might be excluded from the Creator's presence, and that's even more politically incorrect than the first two verses. And of course, it all comes down to basically one question. One great overriding question that is the heart of everything that people believe or refuse to believe about Christ. You know, messages are different. Sermons are different. Lessons are different. And God uses them for different reasons and purposes. I have a message I'm preparing on on child rearing for parenting. And that has a specific group and, and purpose. Once in a while, you just need to go to the scriptures and be reminded of who Christ is and just exalt him. Once in a while, God's people need a reminded that you are either loyal or you're disloyal to the king of glory. It comes down to this one question. And it's the heart of everything that, again, people see when they think or talk about the Lord Jesus Christ. What is the question? Verse 8. Who is this king of glory? Who is this king of glory? Verse 10, who is this king of glory? Now, folks, I don't know in today's current social climate, I don't know in America's spiritual state these days whether or not there is any more important question to have answered in the hearts and minds of God's people and to help answer the question in the hearts and minds of God's people's children, your children and your grandchildren, Then is the question of who? Who is the king of glory? Who is the creator of everything? Who is it? Who does the earth belong to really? And who will we all answer to when it's all gone? Who really is the king of glory? You know what's interesting? Everybody loves, obviously, to quote Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I suppose, Andy, we quote that or read it in almost every funeral service. 
because it's asked for. What scriptures would you like read? Psalm 23, please. The Lord is my shepherd. Everybody loves that chapter. I love that chapter. But can I just remind us all tonight that without Psalm 24, Psalm 23 is just poetry. It's just fanciful thinking. If the shepherd of Psalm 23 is not the king of glory in Psalm 24, then by all means, don't quote it at a funeral or the bedside of someone who's terminally ill. Don't tell somebody not to fear when they walk through the valley of the shadow of death because they'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. No, the Lord doesn't have a forever house if he's not the king of glory. He either is or he isn't king. Lord and Lord of glory. So again, the question to everything is that. Well, who is he to you? What is he to you? Who is the king of glory? You know, among the many interesting and unique things that you discover about God and his word, things you don't see or read anywhere else in any literature of man, if you will, is this title. The title we just read. It's not just king. It's not just king of kings. This title is the king of glory. Now, look, people love to give and to receive glory. There are award shows. I think there's some on tonight. I hate them all. The Academy Awards, all of them. People love to receive and give glory. The Lord Jesus talked about that. And people love titles that go along with it. They are titles of distinction. Kings and queens. They choose to be called your majesty. Your highness. The Catholic Church calls the Pope your holiness. The bishop in Rome is called, and in America, called your grace. A cardinal is called your eminence. In a court of law, judges are called your honor. And so it goes. But you realize tonight that nobody in their right mind would want to be called or would ever call another person your glory. Your glory? And the reason that if you know the Bible, you know that in Scripture the word glory refers to something that man might be the beneficiary of, but could never ever be the benefactor of. Only God is glorious. And only God can confer glory to another. And this is why David is inspired in this psalm to write these words in calling someone a king. Think of this. He is a king. David is an earthly king. But he's inspired to call somebody the king, but not just any king. He is the king of glory. Verse 1 again. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein, for he hath founded it upon the seas. Jesus, God, created it, founded it upon the seas. Look what it says. He established it, built it upon the floods. By the way, I've always been interested that long before scientists ever taught, understood, believed, or knew that this world was two-thirds water, or that the earth's plates are essentially floating, as it were, even now. Or that the earth is this tiny little dot 
suspended way out in space long before man went into space and looked back. Remember our first astronauts? And they went back and they called it that little blue marble out in the darkness. Blue. But long before any of that, David is inspired to write that all of God's glorious creation is founded upon the waters. David was inspired to write that it's founded upon the floods. Now think about that for a moment. All of Jesus, all of God's creation, the mountains, the trees, the valleys, the deserts, why would God say that it's founded, the foundation, founded upon the seas and established upon the floods? The architect, what architect would ever boast that he built his masterpiece on something as unstable as water? You remember what Jesus said? Or Job, rather. Job, you'll remember, is the oldest book in the Bible. And Job makes a remarkable statement. You're familiar with it, most of you who know the scriptures. Thousands of years before Galileo or Copernicus, Job wrote these words. When pagans believed all, other th- all kinds of things, he wrote these words in Job 26. God, he stretcheth out the north over the empty place and hangeth the earth upon nothing. Wow. Isaiah, 500 years before Christ, that prophet Isaiah identifies the earth as a sphere. A sphere, not a square, not flat, not held up by a giant elephant of the arms of Atlas, but a ball, if you will hung out in space and literally floating without foundation. They were right, of course, but why? Why does this text indicate that the Lord, the King of glory, established the earth, the world, upon the waters? I can tell you for one thing. The architect is reminding the people of the earth to put their trust not in the building. To put their heart and their faith as beautiful as, and glorious as this whole creation truly is. But to put their trust and their hope, all of it, in the builder alone. It never was God's intention to get more politically incorrect. It never was God's intent for mankind to place his heart and his hope to feel as if this planet was some sort of indestructible, eternal, unmovable place of refuge. He founded it upon the waters and therefore the object of our hope and our faith. On the contrary, all of the beauty and all of the grandeur and the wonder of God's creation is intended by God to point man's heart to him, to his glory, and to his power. And doing all of that, it points my heart and it should yours to his promises, as we noted this morning, upon which you can place all your hope and all of your trust. You know, if you want to see the irony and the gut-wrenching hypocrisy of our society and the world right now, and the people supposedly with with the world's wisdom, and if you want to see further evidence of the spiritual warfare we're involved in in this world, look at what man does now that he has seen that the earth is hung out in space. 
Look at what man does that he sees now, after all of these, these centuries and centuries, that the earth really is founded upon the waters and it's hung out there upon nothing. And then he realizes, with the climate crisis, past ice ages, that is a cycle, they say, past and future asteroids that will destroy all life, and mankind sees this predicted deluge or the cooling of the sun and or the expanding and the explosion of the sun and or the depletion of all of Earth's natural resources. And mankind, he sees all of this and a dozen other scenarios they put on the Discovery Channel or whatever every other month. He sees it and instead of letting him remind him that Mother Nature is not God, he goes further into darkness by claiming that he, through his ingenuity, can save this fragile planet. That mankind, with his mind and his abilities and sheer human will, can change what they see as future destruction. No. You know, the biggest consumers... Say, Pastor, you sound like you don't love the... I love, I love God's creation. It's beautiful. I'm respectful. I would never throw a bag out the window, McDonald's bag. I see people do it all the time. I, I just wouldn't do it. Christians are not polluters like that. But I'm going to tell you something. The biggest wasters of earth resources in reality on the planet are gathering tonight in Egypt in the 2022 Climate Change Conference. Right now, 10 days, 90 heads of state, including our president, 35,000 representatives, 190 countries, all gathered together, the United Nations Climate Conference, to save this planet. I can't say I blame them. They're lost. I would be worried if, if all I had was this, and I felt like I had to save it, but 400 privately owned flying gas tanks called jets, 400, they counted, private jets flying into this conference. I've seen the pictures, these women of massive wealth wearing these diamond necklaces that took out half the side of a mountain of this precious earth so that they could wear these things. Strip mining eating $500 plates of rare fish eggs and duck liver, $400 bottles of Cristal. And they're lecturing you and I, they're lecturing the world on the need to conserve and save the planet, telling you, as Taylor Swift did, that you have to no longer use warm water in your baths because it's your responsibility to save this earth. I just say maybe, maybe if they didn't fly 400 jets to the conference... Maybe if they didn't buy their sixth mansion on the ocean, which they say is going to rise, but they just spent $23 million buying a house on the ocean. Maybe if they stop insisting on their own fleet of Escalades and Humvees and waste enormous natural resources on their private island gatherings every other week. Maybe then we can start talking about saving, quote, the planet. But the point is this. Man doesn't have the power. 
Mankind does not have the glory to save God's creation. They barely have the ability to drive on I-95 correctly. Amen, I know. (laughs) Talk about pride. It's just foolish pride. If we want to know and you want to consider who really has power, strength to save the planet, think about the one who made the planet. And all the stars, the king of glory who owns it and founded it and established it, verse 8. Who is the king of glory, the Lord, strong, there it is, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Strength. Auburn University had a legendary coach named Shug Jordan. He was a contemporary of Bear Bryant. We were talking about him earlier before church. And there's a famous story about Coach Jordan asked one of his football or one of his former football players if he would do some recruiting for him. And he said, listen, I want you to go find someone. And he said, Coach, I'll do that. What kind of player are we looking for for this position? And the coach said this. He said, well, Mike, you know, there's that fellow that you knock him down and he just stays down. Mike said, yeah, we don't want that guy, do we, Coach? He said, no, we don't want that guy. He said, you know, there's this guy that you knock him down, and he gets up and you knock him down, and he gets up and you knock him down again, and then he stays down. He says, yeah, we don't want that guy, do we, coach? He said, no, we don't want that guy. You know that guy that you knock him down, and he gets up, and you knock him down, and he gets up, and you knock him down, and he gets up, and you knock him down, and he gets up, and you knock him down, and he gets up, and then he stays down. He said, that's the guy we want, right? He said, no. I want the guy that keeps knocking everybody down. (laughs) That's the guy we're going to get. Strength? Power? You know, Pastor, how how strong is the king of glory? I want you to see something. You see the word in verse 8, strong, and then the word mighty. You know, both of those words, it's interesting, are found several times in the Old Testament. Individually, separately. But the only time that they're found together is right here in reference to the king of glory. You'll see the word of hosts. Verse 10, look at it. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. That word host is found in scripture, A, referring to the host of heaven, as you know. That means the trillions of stars that are out there in the universe. He made the stars also. It's also referring to the heavenly host of angels, too many to count. And who is the king of glory? He's the Lord of hosts, plural. He is the Lord of both. And you know, when he comes in Revelation, as we studied just in the past several months, he is strong and mighty, exercising all power. He is unstoppable, uncontrollable. He is a one-person army, a one-man wrecking ball crew and machine. He just speaks his word, and the enemy will be defeated, literally holding every ounce of the power of the universe at his command. By him, all things consist. Were it not for the power of Jesus, we would all be dissolved in a moment. This is the king of glory. And that means that this world and this planet is not in danger in the slightest. Pastor, don't say something irresponsible. People in Egypt are going to get mad. 
This world and this planet is not in danger in the slightest until and unless God decides that it is. And we already know what he plans to do with this planet. Notice again everything that it says in verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and they that dwell therein. The world and they that dwell. You see, a king, beloved, has subjects. A king of glory, that would be a king of kings, has many, many subjects in the presence of his glory. But here's the question. And again, this is to exalt our Lord and Savior. Who gets to be in this kingdom? In the presence of this kind of glory, who gets to be there? Look at verse 3. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? Not just his place, his holy place. Who indeed? And again, the question is, who gets to do this? Who can stand in the holy place and ascend, not descend, ascend up to the hill of the Lord? All right, where's the answer? Get ready for this. Verse 4. He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. Whoa, wait a minute. In other words, nobody. Think about it. Nobody gets to stand in the holy place. Nobody is worthy to ascend into the hill of the Lord. I mean, look, clean hands, pure heart, not lifted up to vanity, no pride. Nobody with pride gets to be in his presence. And it says, not sworn deceitfully, no liars. Can I ask you a question? Which one of you meets those qualifications? How many of you ever told a lie? Raise your hands. Hmm. How many of you ever, when you were little, taken something that didn't belong to you, a paper clip or a piece of candy or something like that? Raise your hands. I'm preaching to liars and thieves. <laughs> now, if you say, I'm worthy, Pastor. Okay, that means you say you haven't lied, which is a lie. And you haven't lifted your soul to vanity, which is pride. And therefore your heart is not pure. Three strikes. You're out. So who's qualified? What about, how about this? What about the man who wrote this psalm? The Holy Spirit of God inspired David to write these words. Surely he's excited about writing this. He meets the qualifications of verse 4. Actually, his testimony is in the very next chapter. Here's his testimony. Verse 25, look at verse 7. Remember not the sins of my youth. It goes all the way back. So do mine. Nor my transgressions according to thy mercy. Remember thou me for thy goodness sake, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore will he teach sinners. Sinners, look at verse 11. For thy name's sake, O Lord, pardon mine iniquity, for it is great. Now, folks, David talked about sins, his own, the sins of his youth. You may remember the Psalms, he talked about sins of omission, sins of commission. My teacher asked me once, what's the difference? I said, well, sins of omissions are just the ones that haven't gotten around to committing yet. Amen? No. 
But think about this. Who among us has clean hands and a pure heart, no pride, has never lied? These are the qualifications for the king's subjects. Well, thankfully, right after verse 4, there's verse 5. He shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. You receive this righteousness. The reason the word salvation is there is because you needed to be salvaged. You didn't have pure hands. Righteousness that makes one clean is given. It is imputed in the Bible. That is God's salvation. And that's the king's promise. This is the same king who told a priest, you must be born again. I'll put it this way. Psalm 24 talks about the crown, the king of glory. Psalm 23 talks about the shepherd and his church. What do you suppose Psalm 22 talks about? Look at it. Same David writing verse 1. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me? What does that sound familiar? Verse 16. Dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Written centuries before Romans even invented this. Verse 18. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. In other words, this chapter is the Savior and his cross. So that you see the sin question. The sin question has been answered for you. Those of us who have trusted Christ and received him. He paid for your sin. And he counsels you. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish. But have everlasting life. Simple faith. Even childlike faith. I want to exalt Christ tonight. And one of the things I want to exalt about him. Is the fact that he has provided a salvation. That even a child can understand and receive. You believe what God has said. You believe what Christ has done on the cross. And you receive that righteousness. You receive that blessing from the Lord, from the God of salvation. Simple faith. A little girl in middle school was mocked by her history teacher for believing that Jonah was actually swallowed by a whale. He was always ridiculing her for this or that and for her simple faith. And he said, Teresa, how could a man... Live for three days in the fish's stomach. And she said, I don't know. When I get to heaven, I'll ask him. And the teacher said, what if Jonah didn't go to heaven? She said, well, then you can ask him. <laughs> I love simple faith. I love simple faith because God loves simple faith. You know, in the Gospels, Jesus said, all power is given unto me. You may remember he said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. Now think about this for a moment. How can that be? How can he say after what we just read, my kingdom is not of this world? He made this world. What did he mean by that? Look at these verses. We're going to close in a minute. Verse 7 says, lift up your heads, O your gates, and be ye lift up ye everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Now, folks, I want you to follow this very carefully. You have to pay attention. I want you to notice that verses 7 and 8 is repeated almost, almost word for word in verses 9 and 10. Let's compare them. Verse 7 says, lift up your heads, O ye gates, 
And be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. The comparisons, verse 9, lift up your heads, O ye gates. Even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Now, comparing 8 and 10, shall we? Verse 8, who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Verse 10, who is this King of glory? Now it changes, the Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory, Selah. Now hear me carefully. Joseph Handel, when he composed the Messiah, correctly interpreted verses 7 and 8 as referring to the resurrection and the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. Open up ye everlasting doors and the King of glory shall come in. Why? Because the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle, has defeated sin and death and Satan and alone. You notice? Alone. The king of glory shall come in. That's the resurrection. That's the ascension. In fact, when the book of Psalms was originally sung by the Jews, by the people of God, each day of the week had appropriated for it a different and a particular psalm. Every Monday, it was Psalm 48. Every Tuesday, it was Psalm 62. Every Wednesday, it was Psalm 94. Every Thursday, Psalm 81. Every Friday, Psalm 93. And every Sabbath, Every Saturday was Psalm 7. Every Sunday, which would one day become the Lord's Day, Resurrection Day, they would read Psalm 24. You think about that, all over Israel, in homes and synagogues, and even in the temple, on Easter morning, thousands of people are singing, verse 7, lift up your heads. O ye gates, and be ye lift up ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. And that brings us to that peculiar repetition. Why are the gates told to open again? Why lift these doors, as it says, a second time? Well, you'll notice the answer is found in the one word difference between the two texts. Verse 10, who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. You see, folks, the second time Jesus ascends, he doesn't do it alone. This time he is the king of glory and he is the Lord of hosts. Resurrection and ascension. And yes, our resurrection, our ascension. Lift up your heads, verse 9, ye gates. Even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. But not just the king of glory. This time, it's for his subjects. Jesus is coming again. There's a lady at the post office. She's getting out of her car, and she opened the door, and a guy noticed the bumper sticker on her car. It said, Maranatha. And he asked her what it meant. And she said, it means the Lord is coming. And he scoffed and he said, that's ridiculous. And she said, well, he's not coming for you. (laughs) Aren't you glad tonight that he's coming for you? John said, do you love his appearing? Yes. Because he's our king. And he's the king of glory. I'll say this and I'll close. If it's true, if Jesus is the king of kings and the king of glory, if he is the 
author and finisher of our faith, the only reason we're saved tonight, and he is. If the earth is his and the fullness thereof, then how is there any room for one of his to be ashamed, to be half-hearted, to be disloyal? There's only one cry of God's people as I read it in the final analysis in the book of Revelation, and that cry is, Thou art worthy. He's worthy of my hands, my eyes, my feet, my heart, my whole life. And God's people said, Amen. Our heads are bowed, please, and our eyes are closed. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. For he hath founded upon the seas and established upon the floods. I wonder tonight who would say, Pastor Blalock, I'm saved by the grace of God. I have experienced the miracle of salvation because of what Jesus did on the cross. And I belong to him and I'm on my way to heaven. But I needed this reminder of who Jesus is. Television's been running this commercial a lot. You've seen it. It's supposed to be about Jesus. And none of it's false. But it's not the whole truth. In the commercials they're running, constantly it just paints Jesus as this really cool guy who really cared about people, who really wanted to help people where they are. He's also the king of glory. And you cannot stand in his holy hill without being saved. And if you are saved, he's worthy of all that you have and all that you are for all of our days. Pastor, I'm saved, but I needed this reminder tonight as a believer. Who would say that? Would you lift your hands where you are? And I lift mine. And amen and amen. How can we be ashamed, embarrassed, shy, half-hearted, well, Pastor, I just want to live my life in comfort and have a good time. And he's worthy of more than that. You know, there's a place where sometimes our comfort and our needs and what we want actually crosses a line of disloyalty to the king of glory. Maybe you're here tonight and you're not saved. You don't know that you're saved. You're not sure that you're saved. You're watching my live stream somewhere. You're not sure your sins are forgiven and your name's written in heaven. Well, as we just noted a moment ago, that prophecy hundreds of years before Christ came explains that Jesus died on a cross. They did pierce his hands and his feet. They did part his garments. He did die on a cross, but he was resurrected. He is alive and he is the Savior and he'll save you tonight. Father in heaven, bless the invitation, Lord. We commit it to your hands. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you that we love your creation. We see it, the grandeur, the glory, the beauty, the power, the marvel of it. And you spoke it into existence. May it point our hearts to you. And because we know the answer to the question, who is the king of glory? Because we know who it is. We submit ourselves afresh and anew. For these of us, for prayer, draw them to you to that end, please. In Jesus' name, amen. On behalf of everyone at Beacon Baptist Church, we thank you for joining us today. Our prayer is that your heart and life has been impacted through the biblical truths of this message. If you have questions or would like more information, please contact us through our website at beaconbaptistchurch.org. That's beaconbaptistchurch.org. 
May the Lord bless you.